Welcome to Growth Hack by Poppy Digital. Tips and tricks to master the algorithms from industry insiders. Now here's your host, Julian Espinoza. Welcome back to Growth Hack, where we break down marketing channels like Google, Facebook, Instagram, and show them how to make them work for you. The internet has evolved and will continue to do so. We can get some of our best indications of what this evolution could look like by looking at the past. Today, on this episode of Growth Hack, we bring on Jason Falls. Jason is one of the most well-respected experts on social media. He speaks and advises companies all around the world and has won numerous awards over the years. He has been at the center of social media since it became popular in the mid-2000s. We talk about the past, future, present, and what's the most important currency today on the internet. Please enjoy my wide-ranging conversation with Jason Falls. Welcome, Jason. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Julian. Yeah, I appreciate you jumping on so quickly, and uh, uh, we only had to reschedule once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in this day and age, it seems like we have to reschedule things eight, nine times, so this was great. Let's get right into this. The internet's been around for 15 years. Uh, we're both at this, pulled, uh, at this point, we're both old-timers in, in, in this space. Uh, we've grown up in the world of digital marketing, and, and, and things have evolved. The internet has evolved, and I think where I want to start today is how has where, where did we come from where are we and where are we going? Wow, that's a that's a Pandora's box of answers. I think you know where where we came from. Obviously, you know when the the biggest problem the internet had early on was just accessibility, bandwidth. You know, people couldn't get to the internet, and so over the first you know probably fifteen or twenty years before it really got to people, because I guess technically the internet's been around since the sixties or seventies, but it took us into the late nineties when we had sort of the dot com boom, where everybody could now have a website. People were able to get online through AOL and, you know, other, you know, Earthlink and other places like that. Um, and then the dot-com bust happened. And I think that, uh, you know, I've, I've written about this before. I think the dot-com bust in 2000 was actually the impetus for what became the social web that we know today. And my sort of philosophy or my theory on all this hypothesis, if you will, uh, and it's kind of tongue in cheek, but it's kind of not, is that all those you know computer nerds who were building websites had to move back into mom's basement. Um, and they all got together in their little chat rooms and said, hey, if we really want to have jobs doing this, we got to make the uh, internet more accessible, easier for people to get to, easier for people to, um, you know, to use. And so that begat the birth of things like blogger.com, which allowed people in a form as simple as an email uh, you know, message to publish a page or even a full website on the internet. And then you had these social networks popping up like Friendster and whatnot that again gave people this really user-friendly interface. At the same time, the back end, the server side people, the bandwidth folks were building, you know, the interwebs that we know today so that we could have faster upload and download speeds, more people could get on it. And so those things kind of, you know, sort of married themselves in the early 2000s. And all of a sudden we emerged in 2005, 2006 with things like YouTube popping up and then Twitter and then Facebook came along and then Instagram and, and so on and so forth. And so where we are now is everybody figured out, okay, we can get online and we can be social. And a lot of people figured out, hey, this allows us to be our own publisher, create, create our own content. Um, unfortunately for some of us, 
everybody who decided they could create content did create content. And we've started to realize that the majority of that content is crap, but there are people out there who are individuals who are creating really good content. And those emerged uh, over the last few years as what we now call influencers. Sometimes, you know, back, you know, 10 years ago, we were, we were calling it blogger relations and blogger outreach uh, from a marketing perspective. And then at, at some point people tried to use the word maven, but that didn't really stick. Um, then in the late 2000, uh, 2000s, early 2010s, the word influencer started to become relevant. And that's kind of what we refer to them uh, as today, which I think there's some problems with that, which is kind of the impetus behind this book that I've written. But I think where we are now is we're separating the wheat from the chaff, right? The people who can create really good content are doing that and making a name and a, and, and a lifestyle and a business uh, for themselves, a career for themselves. And then there's a middle, you know, sort of section of people that think they can, but maybe they're, they're not really great at it yet, but they're trying and they're trying to carve out a niche for themselves in, ter in terms of becoming uh, content creators as a profession. And then there's the rest of us who are sort of watching and hoping that the signal rises from the noise and the inter interwebs become a, a much happier place to be when we can figure out who to trust and where to get our information. How has the change of accessibility devices, how has that affected how consumers engage with companies, brands, and products? Well, it's, it's revolutionized. It changed it dramatically because if you think about it before smartphones, and I guess I, you know, in my little, my previous answer, I should have given a, a, a nod to the iPhone and smartphones for helping revolutionize this because that was a, a, a linchpin in this whole timeline. But before smartphones, the way we interacted with companies and brands was typically via, either via email, which was relatively new, um, or we you know, saw their advertisements, um, or we called them on the phone. There wasn't this sort of real-time, always-on you know, customer service push to be able to engage and get a hold of people all the time. And so from the mid-2000s uh, to the, the 2009, 2010, when smartphones started to become uh, you know, ubiquitous uh, in, in consumers' hands, uh, that really shifted the way that consumers interacted with brands. And you started to see it happening in the early to mid-2000s with you know, things like Dell Hell and all of the customer service complaints where bloggers would basically go to the social web and complain about these companies and their horrible customer service. And brands were like, oh, crap, what do we do? And there were some people like Lionel Menchaca at Dell and a couple of other uh, folks out there um, at different companies like Comcast and whatnot that came to the to the bat and said, hey, I understand this technology. I can embrace this technology. Here's how companies should be using it. And that sort of started this sort of corporate push to understand social media, to understand bloggers in the social web and incorporating customer care and customer service in, in, in how they communicate with people uh, online. So we usually tell people when they're starting their social media journey or their digital marketing journey, we say, hey, let's tackle this platform, this platform. Let's not tackle all of them at the same time. Would you agree with that sentiment? Let's start with one and scale. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you can't handle one, well, you're not going to handle five. Well, so let's, let's, let's go where the, you know, from, from a brand perspective, I always say fish where the fish are, where are the majority of your audience members across these social networks? Let's start there where it's most relevant. And then as we get comfortable, we can grow into those other networks. So let's say this, you're a big brand, you're on these channels. Um, this recently happened to a friend of mine. She handles, I can't name the company, but it's a very, very, very large food chain uh, restaurant, okay? 
and um, they had not activated on TikTok yet. She was actually in the stages of moving in that direction. And literally probably, I want to say 60 days before they were going to launch her TikTok strategy, there was a, at the time, she wasn't an influencer. She was just a random human who uh, made the claim that there was a, um, that there was an animal in her food. I'm not going to name the animal because it'll be too obvious. Um, and this video got over 25 million views. And the whole TikTok community across the all of America identified with this video. Let's talk about that for a second, uh, Jason. So you're a company, you're focusing on something, and yet customer service is starting to happen whether or not you want it on a platform that you're not on yet. Right. Talk about that for a second. So there's 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 a lot of ways you can look at that. I mean, obviously, the first thing you have to do as a brand is you have to look at it from a crisis, you know, uh, communications perspective. You have to be able to step in and have a voice in that conversation. You're going to have a lot of people hammering you, uh, saying, you know, this is gross and this the the service there is terrible, and they're going to say all these things. And you handle that the way you would handle any crisis. Just because it's on TikTok doesn't mean you handle it differently. You have to you know, participate in the conversation. You have to be present and accounted for. So if you don't have your TikTok account up and running yet, you need it. And you need to be able to use it primarily for the intents and purposes of handling that PR nightmare. You have to be able to use that to publish your own perspective on things. So corp comms and lawyers and everything have to get involved because you have to be able to mitigate uh, that PR crisis. But as you do that, as you participate, I look at it as an opportunity. It look, it's an opportunity for you to engage with that community. Yes, it's, it's not on your own terms. Yes, it's negative. But it gives you an opportunity to start being accountable, showing up and being there for the community as they complain, as they have questions, as this thing plays out. And you can be there to say, look, we absolutely understand that this happened and we're embarrassed by it and we want to fix it participating as the brand in a crisis communication in a very genuine, honest way, telling people transparently, this is what we're doing to, to fix this. This is how we're going to respond and react kind of makes the problem kind of go away in, in, a, in a bit, in a, in a way, in a sense, it doesn't always go away quickly, but eventually you get to the point to where now you've got an engaged community there that are paying attention to you, that appreciate what your particip your participation in the community, and then you have permission to say, you know what, we're going to start participating on TikTok now in different ways because that that era that saga is over. Now let us show you what we've got ideas for other ways we can get the community engaged here. So. It's very possible to weather that storm and actually have some very positive outcomes on the other end of it. So I think we've convinced the audience that uh, influence is happening, whether we like it or not. And, and, and consumer behavior has changed, right? So let's use the example that most people are familiar with. Um, it's the TikTok influencer dog face. For those of you that don't remember the TikTok influencer dog face, he was on a skateboard um, and he was listening to Fleetwood Mac and he was drinking cranberry juice. What's really interesting is breaking down why people actually went and purchased ocean spray cranberry juice it was very very interesting right so let, let, let's talk about how influence is happening that's creating you, literally people to go buy cranberry juice because some guy did it 
You know, to be honest with you, that is, a, an, I think, an interesting outlier example because this video was an interesting video. It was had some good music. It was well shot. There was It was entertaining. It just so happened to have Ocean Spray Cranberry Juice in it. It wasn't an ad for Ocean Spray Cranberry Juice. The cranberry juice and him drinking it was a big part of the video, but it could have been any beverage. It could have been anything. Um, because it got so much exposure, because the content mixture of music and facial expressions and gestures and the action that was going on on this skateboard and, and whatnot, whatever reason it became viral, it became viral. People started sharing it. The fact that Ocean Spray benefited from it by just getting brand exposure just reminded people, oh yeah, Ocean Spray Cranberry Juice is available and it's good and this guy likes it and I should pick up a bottle the next time I'm at the store. I think it was pure happenstance more than anything else. There wasn't a design by it. And so breaking that down is almost, you know, it's just breaking down an outlier. I don't think you can replicate that. That just happened to be something that was there. However, you can break down and say, okay, what happened here? We got a lot of impressions. We got a lot of reach. We got a lot of exposure. And we were a part of a culturally relevant moment on the on the social web. And so for brands, what that means is let's find people who are creating those culturally relevant moments, people who are repeating that process, because I don't know that Dogface has done a whole lot since or a whole lot different uh, to replicate that success. It just so happened to be that one thing worked. But there are people out there, content creators, who are intentionally creating content that has that viral capability and creates those cultural moments. And those are typically mega influencers or even celebrities beyond the mega influencer realm. They collect audiences because they know how to create really compelling content for a certain group of people online that they have amassed that's sizable enough that their media footprint, their potential reach and impressions that they can offer you is, you know, sometimes bigger than traditional media outlets, even television networks. Um, and so those content creators who have figured out the formula to create those culturally relevant moments, brands ought to figure out ways to get involved with them. And that's where influencer marketing really comes into play. But it really goes back to the logic and, um, and purpose and strategy behind good brand advertising is we want to be seen in repetition in culturally relevant moments. What's this journey look like to start influencing people through different positions in the consumer journey? It breaks down the way any other sort of uh, marketing channel would break down. The behavior is a little different, certainly, but the breakdown is kind of the same. If you're trying to fill the top of your funnel, um, then what you're trying to do there is you're trying to you know, generate awareness and, and drive you know, leads, basically, people to generate interest in your product. So what you need to do then is you need to look at those reach and frequency met metrics. We need to reach a lot of people. In the online world, influencers can do that. There are plenty of, of them out there that have large audiences, or you can get plenty of influencers that have modest audiences and weave them all together, right? So you can go into that micro and nano influencer strategy to say, we're not going to spend a bunch of money with one or two big influencers. We're going to spend a little bit of money with 50 or 60 influencers to try to get the same kind of reach and frequency frequency numbers we need to achieve that awareness. If you're trying to drive conversion, you have to look at a different type of influencer. You need the reach and frequency, certainly, but what you need more than, than anything else is their ability to persuade their audience. So at that point, you've got to look at 
when are these people, you know, trendsetters in this industry? If they wear something or consume something or recommend something, do people buy it? And, you know, they're on scale that that's easy to, to understand and work. So if you want to sell a bunch of a beauty product, Kim Kardashian might be a great investment for you, even though she's incredibly expensive. Um, but you might also be able to take a 10th of that budget and find a bunch of mid tier influencers that can do the same thing with not as much money. You know, it's really interesting. I think we've seen uh, digital marketing involve follower account was, was the big number that we all paid attention to. And even likes we were paying attention to what, what's the new currency. I think the new currency right now is, uh, for there's two different, two different camps here. Uh, a lot of people are going back to, again, good old advertising metrics, reach and frequency. How many people can you reach and how frequently can we reach them with you? But I think what brands are leaning on influencers for and smart influencers are responding to is, can I prove that I can deliver the metrics they're looking for? Can I create awareness? What are my reach and frequency numbers? And can I show them over time that I reach a lot of people and I engage them to the point to where the numbers do um, pan out? Um, and or can I show them, can I prove to them that I can persuade this audience to take action? So I think if I were to say one metric that is kind of the metric du jour right now is engagement rate, uh, because Kim Kardashian may have, you know, 150 million fans, but if her engagement rate is 0.006%, then someone with 100,000 fans, but a 10% engagement rate, if the math works out there, I don't do math in my head very well, might be a better investment. So engagement rate is a much better way of, of knowing how many people I can actually reach and who are actually consuming the message. But it's also how much reach and frequency can I produce over here? And then you've got the camp of how many conversions can I drive? And so I, as a B2B influencer for software companies that come to me for my podcast and the content that I produce, they've been coming to me now and saying, we need to know you can drive leads. And so I have to turn around and show them, okay, I've done this many campaigns over the last year uh, with leads as the goal. And here's the conversion rate, or here's the click-through rate. And if I can't illustrate that to them, they're not going to invest in me very long. What is one question that I should have asked you in this interview? <laughs> um, I, I think the one question that I would hope that I can start to inspire people to ask is how should I approach influencer marketing? And, and that seems like a very basic introductory question, but my answer is a little different than what, uh, than what uh, most people would answer. I don't think you should approach influencer marketing with an R, and there's a reason why I use that. I don't think you should approach influencer marketing the way other people do. Other people are like, let's find people with big followings online. Let's see what it's going to take to engage with them and see if we can partner with them and collaborate on content. That is a very narrow way to look at what you're trying to accomplish. You are not trying to accomplish influencers. You are trying to accomplish influence. Get rid of the R. Because when you say, my goal here is to produce influence marketing strategies, now all of a sudden the blinders come off and your perspective is more whole. Because Instagrammers and YouTubers are a mechanism to generate influence. But if you are a local business and your primary target audience are parents, the president of the local PTA might be your best influencer and they might not be online at all. 
So what we've got to start doing as marketers is broaden that perspective and say, we're trying to influence an audience to take action. How are we going to do that? Online influencers are going to play a role in most situations, but it might be um, industry thought leaders who aren't necessarily Instagrammers are going to make more sense for us. Or it might be community leaders like the president of the Urban League is going to be someone we want to engage in an, an interesting conversation to create content with or for uh, because that person influences the audience we're trying to reach. We've got to take that R off and start thinking about influence marketing instead of influencer marketing because that's going to help us be more successful with what we're ultimately trying to accomplish, which is persuading an audience to take action or think differently about something. You know, you bring up an interesting point. We recently, so I, I'm involved in a few nonprofits, and one of them was um, we were trying to get some donations coming in to support our food bank. And um, what we did was we invited the chief of police, we invited the vice president of the biggest hospital, we invited a board trustee from the largest college uh, in our area, and a few other key, uh, our state assembly woman uh, was another one. And we invited some, some of these heavy hitters, and they came in in support of this video mixed in with, you know, uh, showing what we were doing, how we were passing out the food, showing the residents and the people that were, 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 were uh, recipients of this food. And I got to tell you, that video has done extremely, extremely well for us. Uh, to your point, these aren't influencers who have Instagrams, who, who have Facebooks, who are going on Facebook Live. They, they aren't these people, but they are key people in the community that people know and that video has now influenced people into donating. So I, I totally see where you're coming from. What you just described is a perfect, what I would call Winfluence uh, or an influence marketing campaign. And, you know, in my book, that's what I talk about is take that R off and make sure you're incorporating people who are influential, not just influencers. And what you described is almost parallel to something we did for a healthcare uh, brand, a client here a couple of years ago. Um, we, we had a, a, a brand video for a hospital that we were launching. And who wants to watch a two minute film about a hospital? Not very many people. But it, what we did was we said, let's engage online influencers who have that online audience to route people to watch this video, give them a reason to watch it. But let's also engage the president of the Urban League, a local dentist who touches a lot of people in the community every week. Um, you know, the uh, the mayor uh, of Lexington, Kentucky, was involved. Um, you know, lots of influential people in the community who would you would never show up in an influencer marketing software program when you're searching for a topic. And so it's almost identical to what you're describing. We got the community involved, people who were influential over the community, because we knew maybe the mayor doesn't have a lot of followers on Twitter, but she has a lot of people who pay attention to what she's doing. And so when she came and watched the video and commented on it and shared it with her network, even though it was small, people were like, oh, the mayor's doing that. I need to go check that out. And so it's a smart way to, to think is you're trying to influence. You're not trying to influence her. Talk just a little bit about uh, your book and what, what can someone expect after reading it? Well, a lot of what we just talked about is sort of changing your mindset of how to approach uh, influence marketing strategically. Uh, there's a lot of really great case studies in the book, of course, because uh, a, a business book isn't, isn't any good without them. So there's some really good examples in there. But basically what I do is I have one chapter. So everybody is clear. I have one chapter that says, here's how you build influence marketing campaigns. But I wrote this book not as a tactical how-to book, but more as a here's how to think about influence strategically. 
And so it takes you through approaching influence marketing from that high level perspective so that you can execute and be successful. There's a lot of stuff in there about uh, measurement and attribution and making sure that you're able to capture the ROI. If financial metrics are part of your output, you can't capture ROI if it's not a financial metric because that's an accounting term. Um, but I also talk about the, the strategic purposes for influence marketing. So you can use it uh, to persuade, just like you would use advertising. You can use it to associate, which I align with public relations and, and, and sort of earned media. You can use it to validate or um, you know, drive ratings and reviews, uh, which are very important for SEO and which are very important, as you mentioned, for the YouTube videos. That's what you can use influence marketing for that. And then you can use it to enthuse, which is I align with word of mouth marketing, which is a really powerful way to get people to you know influence their family and friends about you. And so the book breaks all of those down, has a lot of case studies in it. And I think anyone who reads this, whether you're a small business owner or whether you're a marketing manager at a company or whether you're the CMO of a huge enterprise, it'll at least help you understand how to think of influence marketing in a much more broad strategic approach so that you can be more successful. Well, Jason, thanks for coming on the show. I know we've pretty much only skinned the surface, even if we've done that. And uh, I'd love to have you back on the show and, and thanks for coming. Julian, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.